Let's open our Bibles, if you have them. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. We're in verses 12 to 25 as we continue our study following the servant king through Mark's gospel. We have arrived at the day after he has entered Jerusalem for the very last time. Y'all, it's generally agreed that this is one of the more difficult passages in all the gospels. If you read commentaries, if you just read the story we're about to read in a moment, you're going to see why. Um, People tend to can tend to do some somersaults around it and try and get around some of the difficulties. I hope we, we do not do that today, but instead simply take the story as it's been given to us and trust its historicity and what Jesus means for us to hear. Now, Jesus has entered Jerusalem, verses 1 through 11. Um, Phil Covert taught this some weeks ago. He's come into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, right? And they are shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, it had to be, I think, one of the high points for the disciples. I don't know about you, but if I was, had, had my, my man, you know, riding on the donkey and everybody's giving him a ticker tape parade, I would be pretty excited. And I've got to believe that these men had uh, visions of sugar plums dancing in their head because they have been arguing incessantly about Who's going to be greatest? And now they see this happening, and I, you know, it's this sense of, yes, this is it, and it's going to be good. And then Jesus does what he does and says what he says in this text, and it is a wake-up call. Uh, it's dif- difficult on on so many levels, um, what Jesus says and does and, and, and invites them to believe is not just hard. Can I say this? It's impossible. And then here's what makes this thing such a conundrum. That which is impossible to believe is the very thing that you have to believe in order to have the hope that he gives. What do we do with that? Well, We'll see as we work through the passage and come to the back end and see the difficulty in how Jesus himself resolves it. I'm going to start with a kind of a technical beginning and give us the, uh, the, the structure of the passage. You just have to imagine this in your mind's eye, but it's review in a sense. Those of you who've been walking through Mark with us know that he uses a technique called an inclusio throughout his, uh, his, his story of Jesus' life. We also call it a sandwich a Markin sandwich, and you know I'm going to call it a Markin burger today, just to freshen it up a bit, because you know how burger has a bun on the top, a bun on the bottom, and has meat in the middle. This is a Markin burger here, and we stay away from uh, some of the misinterpretations of the passage when we take the whole burger and don't just take the top bun or, or the middle section. We got to keep it together, and as we read this, understand we'll start with the top bun. And that top bun uh, is the cursing of a fig tree. It's, it's, uh, it, it's interesting, and we'll see that in a moment. But he goes from the cursing of a fig tree, the middle section, the, the hamburger meat here, is Jesus in the temple. So what does this have to do with him being in the temple? We'll see that in a moment. That's the middle section of the burger. And then he's going to give us the bottom bun. So you've got to have the whole sandwich in the bottom bun. Is this fig tree that he cursed up here? Oh my goodness, the fig tree down here is withered and dead and no good. What in the world is going on in this story 
and how do we understand it? Well, we take each piece, we understand them, then we take the burger as a whole, okay? I'm going to give you three categories, three, three markers as we go through it. We'll just start with the, the, let's call it the fruitless tree, okay? And then we're going to go to fruitless temple. So fruitless tree is the top, fruitless temple's in the middle, and then the bottom bun is actually going to be fruitful faith, okay? Let's start with fruitless tree. It's verses 12 to 14. Follow along in your Bibles. It says, on the next day, this is now Tuesday, uh, this is Monday, the final week of Jesus' life. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he's staying there. It's two miles away. He became hungry. They're headed toward Jerusalem. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. How about, what does that mean, right? You look at it. Well, you know, he's, he's coming back to Jerusalem. He's going to head to the temple, as we'll see in a moment. And on the way, he sees a fig tree. I want you to get the geographical markers. He sees the fig tree at a distance. So from a distance, that thing is just covered in leaves. But up close, it's what? Bear. It's fruitless. Keep that in mind. This carries us through the story. Uh, Peter is going to say that he cursed the tree because he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. When you hear this word curse, we'll see this later in the third section. Peter says you cursed it. it it's a pronouncement of judgment. Okay, So it's not curse words or chewed it out. He pronounced judgment on that tree. And then Mark adds this phrase that just trips everybody up because he says, and it was not the season for figs. And, and I've read a lot on this passage, you all, and it's amazing to me how people begin to personalize the fig tree. And we've got to be so careful about this, you know, you know, kind of calling the fig tree innocent, like, man, the fig tree hadn't done anything. Why would he curse it? You know, it's like, it's a tree, you know? I mean, yeah, it doesn't have, but it's a, it's a tree. How many of you burned firewood this winter? How many of you? Raise your hands. I can't believe you did that, you know? It's like, what did the wood do to you? Why, why, why would you throw it in fire? It's, it's just a piece of wood, you know? And we gotta be careful about getting these thoughts in our head of trees and even animals having souls and things like this. They don't, okay? And, it, and not to, to, to belabor the point, but um, Bertrand Russell, he, he's a, a you know, famous philosopher, but he wrote a book, Why I'm Not a Christian. Brilliant man, and he cited this verse to say, the way Jesus spoke to that tree, there's no way that I would believe he's the son of God. I mean, truly, and I'm not making fun of that. And we've gotta be careful that we don't, you know, get weird thoughts in our heads about these things. It's a tree. Now, a primer on, on uh, some horticulture on fig trees in this day can help us. J.D. Grasmick writes this, and follow along with me. It's a little bit long. The time of the year was Passover. It was the month of April. So this is when this is happening because we know Passover is, is at that time. In Palestine, fig trees produce crops of small edible buds in March, followed by the appearance of large green leaves in early April. It's interesting that a fig tree, you see, has this little fruit that comes on it at first, and then the leaves come. And he goes on to say this, these, this early green fruit, these little buds, they were common food for local peasants. Eventually the buds, they actually drop off when the normal crop of figs formed and ripened in late May, they'll come later, 
uh, May and June in the fig season. Thus, it was reasonable for Jesus shortly before Passover to expect to find something edible on that tree, even though, and it says it, it was not the season for figs, end quote, end of discussion. That makes sense to us. So while many get hung up when it says, and it was not the season for figs, we actually miss the part we should get hung up on. We actually miss the phrase that matters. And you know what that is? And his disciples were listening. That's the phrase to highlight. It's Mark's way of cluing us as the readers to go, they're listening because something bigger than the fig tree's going on. Now, when I say this, you'll go, oh, okay, I get that. Because they knew, again, we, we're, you know, we're Gentiles, we're so far removed from this, but, but, but the Jews knew very clearly that throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was often compared to a certain tree. Guess which tree it was compared to? I'm being serious. A fig and an olive tree and a vine, you know, those things. But they knew. So when they heard that, they went, he just cursed a fig tree and fig trees representative of Israel. Indeed, it's representative of Israel. And that will help us understand the entire passage. Now, Jesus does something that, you know, he's never, he, he, it's the only time he does it. He does a, a miracle of destruction, and uh, it's the last miracle before his death. It's uh, the only time he does it. Um, and he is, he is acting out a prophecy. Because you wonder, why did he do that? And why is he going to do the things he's getting ready to do? Let me tell you, he is following in a long line of prophets. Jesus has three offices, prophet, priest, and king. Let me tell you what the Old Testament prophets did. Not all of them, but occasionally God would call on a prophet to not just say a message, but what would he ask him to do? Act out a message. In other words, the physical actions speak louder even than the words that would be spoken. Isaiah 20, the nation of Israel wants to go to Egypt to get help. Let's go to Egypt to get help against the Assyrians because the Assyrians are about to crush us. And God says to Isaiah, I want you to take your clothes off. Oh, my word. Now, he's not buck naked, but he's got all underwear. And he says, take your shoes off. And I want you to walk around the nation for three years. You go, what? Because God was saying to the nation, you want Egypt to rescue you from the Assyrians. What you don't understand is Egypt is going to walk around naked because the Assyrians are going to crush Egypt. So don't go to them for help. And you go, God really required, I mean, I, that was a lot of work, you know, to get that message across. Indeed, why? Why would he have him undress and do that for three years? Because the message was that important. And we come to this passage and Jesus prophetically acts out a parable. Can I say this? Because the message is so important. I mean, this is so critical that Jesus is going to act it out tangibly. He's going he's to do things to things to shout this message so that not just the disciples would hear, but, but we would hear it as well. Okay, well, what's the message of cursing the fig tree? Well, we've, I mean, you're just eating the bun right now on the top, and we've got a hamburger to go, and we've got a bottom bun, and then it will make sense. Let's go to the fruitless temple, middle section, verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. 
and overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. Jesus and the disciples arrive in Jerusalem. Uh, He is acting out a parable in a big, big way. And now we get to see, I want you to see what he saw the night before when he surveyed the complex and then left for Bethany and now has come back. I've got a picture up here on the screen. This is out of the ESV study Bible. I think it's pretty phenomenal. This is the, uh, this is the Temple Mount on top of Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount in the time of Jesus. And just a couple of things I want you to note as we put ourselves there. This thing is massive. It was the largest uh, you know, structure like this, religious structure in antiquity. This thing, picture it this way, 525 yards, 525, 325, 37 plus acres, 37 plus acres in the complex itself. The complex, I'm gonna say this several different times. You gotta remember this. This is where you meet God. This is not just any place to a Jew There is no place more important than that ground right there. This is where you connect with God. This is where your sins are forgiven. It's not even just spiritual, y'all. This is is identity. We don't have, I don't know that we have that in our country per se as a people. This is not just, this is who I am as a Jew is this temple and all that it represents. Now, it was divided into four sections. We'll see them here. This area right here that the pointer's on that goes all the way around here, this open area was called the Court of Gentiles. Uh, The Gentiles could come into the Temple Mount, please know that, but they could go no farther than this fence. Now, on this fence that surrounded the inner courts here, this is the only place Gentiles could go, no further. And do you know what it said on, on that fence? I'm paraphrasing this, but it said it. There would be signs, just like no hunting, no trespassing. All along there, it would say, if you're a Gentile and you come in here, your death is on you. If you're a Gentile or you're unclean, you'll be killed if you come. I mean, you don't go there, okay? Now, the, the other parts of the temple would be the, the court of women here. Women could come here, could come in here. They could go no further than there. Then the court of the Jews, the court of the Israelites, Jewish men could go there after they've been purified. And then the temple itself, the holy of holies in the back. And by, you know, only one man could go in there only one time a year. And boy, did he have to go through a lot to even go in there to make atonement, to, to, to cover the sins of the nation. So this is the Temple Mount, massive. And I want you to know, it's interesting, 25 acres of the 37 acres was dedicated to who? The biggest parts to who? The Jews? Who's it to? The nations. And now they've made this market there where the nations can't even gather. So now when they come here, of course, God had instructed them that when you come to the temple, you, you, you've got, you, you bring sacrifices. And so they set up stalls where if you're traveling, you know, a two days journey to come to Passover, you don't have to bring your cow or your lamb. Buy one here, you know, and they would. And they would buy them there and the markets and stalls would be set up within there. This, is, this portico right here, by the way, is probably where most of the market was set up and then a lot of activity out here in the court of Gentiles. They said that, to, to, it would take three men with their arms connected to get around one of the columns 
that would hold up all these columns see right here, but they're on the inside, 35 feet tall. Just, just the grandeur and splendor of this thing is amazing. They would have to come, if you're 20 years and older, if you were male, 20 years and older, you would have to pay a half shekel tax. Now, because you lived out, it's, it'd be like you're, you're living out in the country, you've got Roman coins. So you've got to exchange a coin and get a Tyrian coin that's closer to the value of a half shekel and use that. So this, is, this all makes sense. You know, get your animals here, uh, get your dove here. Dove were just f- for poor people. That was their sacrifice. Get your money exchanged here. Totally all makes sense. Jesus comes in and throws these tables around. Can you imagine the, 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 the smoke, the smell, the sacrifices? Josephus, he was a Jewish historian, he said that a generation later, so say some 30 years later, at one Passover week, they sacrificed some 255,000 lambs. Now, we don't know if they did that many here at Passover. It'd probably be less, but we're talking hundreds of thousands of animals in one week slaughtered at this place right here. This place was buzzing. I mean, it was just crazy, all the activity. And Jesus comes in and throws tables over. I mean, dove are flying everywhere. You can imagine sheep are going around, going crazy, you know, and all the changes falling all over the place. And amazingly to me, they don't stop him per se. He was probably in one small section. Don't think he could cover the whole thing, quite frankly. But in that section, it quieted down enough that he could teach. How about that? And when he taught, he said, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? Isaiah 56, 7. For all nations. And then we've already noted that they had taken, and they had taken the court of Gentiles, and it was full of people. They had no room. You know, the Jews had a thought that when, the, when Messiah came, he would rid the temple of foreigners. And this is what's so, such the conundrum, isn't it? The others have said this, but he comes in and he actually rids the temple of foreigners? No, he actually rids the temple of some Jews so the foreigners can come in. This is all difficult for a Jew to take in, isn't it? And then he says, but you have, he said, you have made it a robber's den. That's Jeremiah 7, 11. Now, initially, you know, I, I read that. And I don't know if you do. And you go, man, yeah, the, yeah, they're stealing money from these people. The exchange rates are terrible. They're charging them more for the cows and the sheep and the bulls. And Well, that's not what he's talking about. He says, you have made this. In, in other words, this, think about it, the temple mount and all it represents, you have made it a robber's den, The robber's den is not where a thief steals. The robber's den is where after the thief steals, takes the money from the bank, and then they go hide out over in the warehouse and count the money and hide, right? So a robber's den is where thieves go and think they are safe from condemnation. Jeremiah 7, 9 through 11, I want you to hear it. Don't turn there. But this is the entire, or or most of the text. God says, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, and swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, that you may do all these abominations, has this house, which is called by my name, become a a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I have seen it, declares the Lord. You see that? If I put it in our vernacular, in our kind of cultural way, this is maybe a little too far, but it'll help us. It would be like me saying 
to you. Are, are you kidding me? You guys have lived your own way all week. Some of you have bowed to idols in different ways. You've not trusted God. You've discounted God's word. And you think you can come to church and go, I'm safe here? Well, clearly in God's eyes, you're not safe if you go through religious rituals and things that make you think you're safe, even after you've lived apart from him. And this is what's really important to understand. Jesus, y'all, is not cleansing the temple. And that's what we always, we refer to this passage as the cleansing of the temple. Y'all, he's condemning the temple. He's not reforming the temple. He's dissolving the temple. Can I say it this way? He's not cleaning it up and going to make it better. He's destroying the temple. How do we know that it's this severe? Well, let's finish the burger, the bottom part of the bun, fruitful faith in verses 19 to 25. Notice what happens when evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. And then he says these things about mountains and prayer and forgiveness. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Therefore I say to you, all things which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. Whenever you stand praying, that's how they prayed, standing. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you and your transgressions. You may have brackets around verse 26 because it's really not found in the earliest manuscripts and so we will not cover that. This is the only miracle of destruction, I've said that, that Jesus does. Trees don't decompose from the roots up in 24 hours. That doesn't happen. Now, of course, some of us like to spray Roundup on weeds. It's guaranteed 24 hours that thing's dead, but not a tree. It's a miracle, right? We've got to note that it, it, it is a miracle. And this is why I say that Jesus is not cleansing the temple. He is condemning the temple. He's pronouncing judgment on the temple. The temple is now withered, useless, fruitless, forever. Lloyd, how do you get that? Well, take the whole sandwich He's cursed the fig tree. He's made these statements within the temple, and now the fig tree is withered. The nation of Israel is symbolic of the fig tree. So then their, their means and access to God, Jesus is saying, this temple mount is withered like the fig tree. It will never produce fruit. I don't think we can fathom how difficult this was for the disciples to get or any Jew today to to believe. I mean, this is the place where for thousands of years we have, this is our identity. This is where we meet God and we're the only ones who meet him. You see, and you're saying it's no more. 
I don't think the disciples got it until after the resurrection as we read the story. Jesus answers, you know, Peter's statement, by the way, I think was shielding, hiding a question. Why'd you do that, Jesus? What's this all about? Because Jesus answers him. And notice what he says, four short words. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Let me expand that. It's Jesus saying, believe everything I say is true. Trust what I have said will happen, will happen. Have confidence in all that God has promised he would do, he will do, and is doing in me. Have faith in God. And then he goes into this statement about mountains, prayer, forgiveness. Now, the context, keep this in mind, and let's put our our slide back up. What's the context of our story? Our context is Israel seeking righteousness with God through the Temple Mount and ritual. That's the context. We've got to keep that in mind as we try and determine about these mountains. I want you to picture this. They are standing at this moment in the Temple Mount, they're, 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 they're by it. I mean, it's obviously there. It's the center of our story. And Jesus can look out on the horizon, and they can at this time geographically, and you can see the Dead Sea from here. So we, many commentators think this, and, and, and I do, that you could see the Dead Sea laying like a flat black mirror down on the ground in the distance. And Jesus doesn't say, you know, if you ever want to move a mountain, if you'll just have enough faith, you can move it. He doesn't say that, does he? He says... This mountain, what mountain is he talking about, y'all? What mountain is he talking, what mount is he describing? If you, if you want to do this mountain, this mount, you see. Not any other mount. This is, and by the way, this is not all Jesus ever had to say on prayer. So this is not, like, this is not all about like, man, I could do this and people move mountains. Y'all, if, 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 he was, if he was talking about literally moving mountains, don't you think the apostles would have moved some and we'd have records of this mountain that moved? It'd be amazing, it'd be crazy. Gosh, the hill, he moved the hill. No, he's, he's talking about something much, much bigger, quite frankly. Rabbis use the phrase move a mountain uh, to describe resolving impossible difficulties. So that a rabbi that could unravel a, a, you know, a, an issue that was, no one could unravel was said to, said that rabbi is a mountain mover. See, this is a phrase that was, was common to them in using this way. Now, think of those, what I'm describing to you, and put it together with this story. What is the obstacle, the difficulty, that the disciples cannot get their heads around? I mean, it's just impossible for them to get their heads around. Let me give you a hint. Jesus keeps telling them something that's gonna happen to him and they cannot believe it. What is it? Somebody. His death, his suffering, his burial, and his resurrection. They cannot get their heads, their minds, their hearts around it. You talk about a mountain. And Jesus says, have faith 
trust that what I'm saying is going to be. And this mountain is going in the Dead Sea because this way of having access and relationship with God is gone. There's as much life in that as there is in the Dead Sea. And they've got to be wondering, if, if that's gone, then how will we have access to God? In Mark 14, at his trial, two witnesses are going to come up and say, do you know what this man said? He said, I will destroy this temple made with hands and three days later I'll build it back without hands. What? Jesus did that. And the temple was what? Himself that was destroyed. And three days later, without hands, was raised from the grave, and Jesus is saying, and by the way, this temple will be destroyed, literally. Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. <laughs> Y'all, it's me. This, is, this has been pointing to me for thousands of years, but it is dead as a withered fig tree. And it's only when you have faith in me, you see, will you have faith. Access to God, forgiveness of sin. What a story. I mean, you know, and I hope we can get it clearer than they did because we stand on this side of the cross. The coming of Jesus is the end of the temple. He is the temple and all that it represented. Some of us may go, well, then why in the world did God do the temple? Because he was showing Israel this is what Messiah will do and be when he comes. This is what it means to be in relationship with me. Sin requires death. Kill the lambs, pour the blood out, make the sacrifices. You can't even come in my presence unless the priest does this. This is how a fallen people relates to a holy God. And then Jesus comes and what was he? The lamb, the lamb of God slayed once for all. No more lambs need to be sacrificed. The lamb has come, killed, buried, and risen again. So Mark, you see, brackets the story of Christ in the temple. He brackets it with the curse, the withered fig tree, because the temple is no more, because Jesus is everything. And all things that the temple represented. Wow. Of course, we don't go to the temple for access to God. Or do we? Maybe, maybe we do still in some ways. But can I offer a few thoughts for you to consider? To the degree that you do anything, good things, to the degree that you think your obedience, uh, your service, your worship here, your sacrifices that you make, to the degree that your discipline, 
to the degree that you go, well, I'm not sinning, to the degree that you think those things make you acceptable to God, you're standing in the temple. You're not at the cross. Bible study, leading a small, maybe you're going to talk to Will afterwards because, you know, there's just part of you goes, you know, that's, God will appreciate that, me leading a study, serve in the learning center, volunteer at Tusculum Elementary, have a big bag, four bags out behind your car. I'm giving, I'm giving brand new clothes to Thrift Smart. Uh, telling others about Jesus, sharing your faith, supporting a compassion child, going on a mission trip, putting others first, honoring your marriage vows, teaching the Bible like I'm doing right now. I could go on and on and on and on. You know, they're all good things. And, But if you do any, any of that, if, if any of that you do, with any measure, any molecule that says, yeah, because when I do that, I'm going to be acceptable to God by doing that. This makes me, this is how I can have access to God and I can be with God. You're in the temple, you're in the temple, you're in the temple. You're not at the cross, the cross where Jesus paid it all, where it's his obedience, not even my obedience that makes me right with God. It's his obedience. And when you go to the cross and you have faith in God and you go, there is nothing I could do to make myself acceptable to God. I come to you, Jesus, and I bring nothing but my sin and my fallenness. I don't deserve it. I am fallen. I am broken. I could never be acceptable to God. But I trust that your obedience was acceptable to him. Your death was for me. And you accepted and paid the penalty that all sin deserved on my behalf. You did it for me, Jesus. Then you stand up and you say, in Jesus Christ, I am forgiven. I don't deserve it, but I'm totally forgiven and I'm actually clothed in his righteousness even though I continue to sin but those sins are forgiven and cleansed and in his righteousness. Do you know what I start doing? I do read my Bible. I, I, I like to have a quiet time. I, I'm going to volunteer at Tusculum Elementary. You see, I'm going to do those things but in no way do I do them out of a heart that's thinking, I need to do them. Because if I do them, God will love me more. I'll, no, 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 no. See, I do those things out of the fullness of Christ's obedience, life, death, and resurrection on my behalf. Man, that's freedom, y'all. That's life in Christ. Close your Bibles. Set them aside. I'm gonna ask the ushers to come down. We're gonna pass out the elements for the Lord's table. This is a wonderful application to this text. If you have placed your faith in Christ, can I invite you, please join us at the table, even if you're a guest of ours today. If you've put your faith in Christ, take the bread and the cup and hold it. We will take the elements together in a moment. Can I say to you, if, if you've not trusted Christ, then uh, the this table's not for you. It's not to be mean about it. It's just this is a table for those who've believed. And if you haven't, the most integrous thing you could do is to not take the table but sit and ponder. And I'm glad you're here. And I hope there's a sense to which you're here and the Lord speak to you. you. You wouldn't be here if God wasn't at work in your life. And maybe during these moments, the courage for you, the faith for you, if I can say it, is to sit and ponder. Man, what am I doing to be pleasing to God? Do I believe that Jesus paid it all and did everything? And you might have a conversation with God along those lines. 
Again, take the elements and hold them. We'll take them together in a moment. When Jesus turned over the tables in the, on the temple mount, and, and, and he, he, he destroyed the temple, quite frankly. It'll be literal at A.D. 70. Um, the disciples had to be thinking, like I said earlier, if, if, if not this, then what? And what they didn't know was Jesus was getting ready to prepare for them another table, right? Now, this, this is no accident. And Jesus prepares a table before us, even now. And on that table is bread representing his body that was broken and this cup of, of wine or grape juice that we have, symbolic of the blood that was shed. See, Jesus makes a way, the only way for access, relationship with God the Father through his own life, death, and resurrection. And as this is being passed, can I ask, ask you to just pray. And here's two things you might think about. Is there any area of life that you are, you're actually, you actually take detours to the temple and you need to repent of that? It's very, it could be very subtle. I don't know. I'll trust the spirit of God in you, but would you consider that? Are, are, you, are you side tripping to the temple rather than just resting fully in the cross? You might think about this, another image he gives us. Are you, are you a really leafy Christian? I mean, really nice, big green leaves from a distance. But on closer inspection, there's no fruit. Little, I don't know. Just, just thought, I mean, this comes from the text. Just some thoughts for you to ponder. You do that, have a conversation with God, and then we'll take these elements together. Lord Jesus, we hold the bread and the cup, and we remember your body broken for us, your blood shed your obedience to the Father on our behalf. Forgiving your physical body to be beaten and bruised and punished and broken on our behalf, we give thanks. Take and eat the bread. And for your blood poured out, not the blood of bulls and goats that covered that mount for generations, but the blood of the only Son of God, pure and undefiled, the only blood of its kind representing your perfect life given for us. Jesus, we remember and we proclaim your goodness. Take and drink the cup. Let's stand together and I will pray this benediction over you. Father, thank you for sending your only son Jesus to fulfill all that the temple was pointing to and illustrating. 
as hard as it was for the disciples to have faith in you, to believe that their effort, their work, their obedience was fruitless to gain access to you, it's hard for us as well. Indeed, it's impossible. And so we can know that in this moment that trusting you, having faith in you, is a gift you've given. We couldn't figure this out on our own. Were you not at work in our lives, we would not be at this table of grace, this table of unmerited favor. What is impossible for us is not impossible for you. Thank you for saving us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus because he is our righteousness and in him we are forgiven all our sin. We need not reach for fig leaves to cover our shame as our parents Adam and Eve did. We need not use the leaves of religion to make us look righteous. We marvel at your grace and rest in it as forgiven and forgiving people. Amen. And God bless.